Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin. Today, I'm joined by Adam B. Levine. Hi. And I'm Stephanie Murphy. We have a guest with us. It's Ryan Singer from Blockchain Health and of many other projects, but Blockchain Health is your most recent one that we're going to talk about today. Hi, Ryan. Hi, how are you? Doing great today. So the reason I wanted to have you on the show is because I'm really interested in how the blockchain can apply to things like health records. And that's sort of a problem that you're tackling in this new project that you've started. And I wanted to talk about just generally, what is the problem and how could the blockchain be a solution? Why don't you start by telling us, you know, a little bit about your company and why you decided to start it? Absolutely. So Blockchain Health is a brand new company. It's existed for less than 30 days. So what happened was a friend of mine who I worked with way back at Sun Microsystems when I was a teenager was working at a giant pharmaceutical company. And he's been looking at kind of tech trends that impact the future of his company. And he asked me to come speak at a private event for a bunch of his people about blockchain and, you know, what it's useful for other than uh, moving money between countries, right? And you had been involved in some other Bitcoin and blockchain related projects before that? That way you got the invitation? Absolutely. So I founded a company called Trade Hill with Jared Kenna back in 2012. Uh, we were prominently featured in the documentary, The Rise and Rise of Bitcoin. So I talked to them and it was, it was a really kind of eye-opening experience for me, both researching to prepare for that and going to meet them. The whole patient records and big data around health is hopelessly, hopelessly broken. Right now, the medical records are generally kept at the care provider, and there are these giant uh, systems called electronic me medical record systems, EMR systems, and uh, it's a multi-billion dollar industry that's stuck in the 1980s. There's a, there's a, there are a couple of giant companies that what they do is they take big consulting contracts to um, modify their software exactly for that hospital's business processes, and the goal is to reduce liability, to kind of catalog every step that the doctor does that he could be sued for not doing, keep the records the doctor needs within the system that reduces liability so there's no external records, and maximize billing to make sure the hospital assigns billing codes so everything gets paid, uh, everything that it can from the insurance companies, the governments, and the patient. Um, unfortunately, what you don't hear there is share data about health, right? <laughs> These systems are not designed for that. They, they don't have a very good idea of health indicators and whether or not someone is healthy or not healthy. They don't have a very good idea of where that data is going to be used later. Like if, if hospital participates in a health data exchange or something like that, the whole permissioning system is just kind of strange, right? Everyone at the hospital can access the data, but they log who accesses it so they can come back and punish later if they access it appropriately. And it's, just, it's really like, it's bizarre. Right. And another thing you don't hear in there is that the patient owns their own biological data, right? Like you would think if there's data out there that's relevant to your health, which is one of the most personal things that you could have data about, then you, the person who that data is pertaining to, would have some element of ownership over it, or at least like the ability to access it whenever you need to. But I mean, if you've ever moved cities and tried to get your health records from one physician to another, if you've had an ongoing health problem that's continued over the time that you've moved, it's a nightmare trying to do that. Every process is a little bit different. And you, you as a patient feel like 
other people have all this control over your personal data, but you are locked out from accessing your own data. <laughs> Absolutely right. And despite that, at this point, almost every medical institution in the U.S. has electronic medical records, you still often get to the point where the easiest way to share data in between your old medical institution and your new one, if they're not part of common ownership or common control, is actually to get the old place to print everything out. Yep. And then you lug the actual paper in a banker's box to the new place where someone at the new place has to type everything in. And so when we talk about the cost of healthcare, there just for patient from one place to another is a couple hundred bucks of absolutely wasted duplicated effort just because the data standards aren't very good. It gets really ridiculous when you talk about such a highly regulated, highly bureaucratic, bureaucratized system that, like you said, is stuck in the 1980s. I actually went to medical school for a couple of years. I didn't uh, finish my MD, but I you know, saw these problems totally firsthand, both as a medical student and as a, as a patient myself, right? Everybody's a patient, right? It's a mess. <laughs> Hospitals can't keep the records straight. They can't have like the right people having access. There's a problem with like control of access to like who needs to know about the data being able to access and who doesn't need to know being kept out. Then there's a problem with the patients accessing their own data and having control and sort of administrative rights about granting access to their data to the people that need to know it to take care of them. There's processes with like administrating the whole thing. It's incredibly inefficient and bureaucratic. And, and there's so many potentials for violating HIPAA rules. Every hospital has its own custom system based on their own business practices, as you said. And also, when you're talking about medical research, I have a PhD in biochemistry. Like We needed to access data sometimes from patients, but you have to get everybody's permission. And like HIPAA rules allow for some degree of mining data, anonymized data from people's re medical records and using it in uh, clinical studies. Um, but that process is a total mess too. <laughs> like often it ends up just being pulled out manually and it, you, you just end up thinking like in this world of email and electronic everything, why is this so dinosaur-like? You know, why, why are there so many inefficiencies in this process? So yeah, the, the researchers getting access to clinical data it's a nightmare right now. The data is aggregated in this format that's intended to, to match the business process of the hospital and to mitigate liability and increase billing for the hospital. It's not going to be data that's well optimized for research. When they de-identify it and put it together and sell it to these healthcare exchanges and sell it to the research organizations, um, the data that the research organizations are buying is so bad, is so like close to useless that often what they have to do is try as hard as they can to pick out ID numbers from this data cohort and then reach right back out to the uh, hospital that sold the data and say, hey, listen, could you reach out to the person and ask them if they can give us their data themselves? Yeah, and there's whole companies that do that for like contract research organizations and pharma companies. And I mean, those companies wouldn't need to exist if that process was more efficient. And we're, the, the point of this is we're not just talking about something that causes bureaucracy and ends up costing consumers more. It does do that, but it's not just about that. This is actually about life and death because when medical research is FUBAR, people are not discovering cures for diseases that they could be discovering and people are suffering and dying needlessly because medical research technology is being held back. 
And also people's privacy is being compromised on a regular basis, needlessly. <laughs> we have the technology to solve these problems, but they're not being solved. So mm -hmm. you end up with the worst of both worlds, right? Where not only do we have both research and treatment uh, being stymied by both bad data and bad technology, you also, on the other side, have big data and bad technology and bad security damaging patient privacy and patient access to care over and over and over again. So last year, I was on a call with another group that was kind of focused in on the same issue. And one of the things that became apparent in that call was that it really wasn't about the technology. It was more about the rules, specifically the HIPAA rules of how everything needs to be handled. You know, I'm curious, is that something that you've run into? And in general, I'd love to hear a little bit about your solution. First of all, I'm not a, I'm not a stranger to regulated industries, right? At Trade Hill, we were one of the first Bitcoin exchanges to register a fence in. We were one of the first to engage in conversations with the state governments. And, uh, and re regulation compliance with it was very important to us. And since then, I've mostly been working with banks and with, you know, clearing systems for extremely regulated securities. I was going to say, it sounds like you picked like the two most regulated industries to work within, basically, <laughs> in your career so far. Right. Dealing with government infrastructure is a price of doing business in rich countries. It's just, it's something that you do. And that's something that I do. And that's something I'm not at all concerned about. The good news is when it comes to HIPAA, HIPAA is a real pain in the ass. If your goal is to run big data services with health data, but if your goal is to help the patient secure their own health data, HIPAA is actually your best friend. Uh, HIPAA is written very strongly from a patient-centric, privacy-centric position, where except for the very narrow exceptions that Stephanie mentioned earlier, the default assumption is that the patient is in control of the data. The patient is in control of the privacy of the data. Even to the extent of the patient can ask um, a care institution to stop custodying their data, and the patient has the right to ask for their data at any time and to ask for it either in the format in which it's stored, or in a mutually agreeable format, or if that can't happen, then in paper, right? And so HIPAA is written from a perspective that regulates really well if you start thinking about patients as custodians of their own data. If you think of a model where the patient takes their data from the various care providers and laboratories and other sources and exports that directly onto their physical devices under their physical control. And they themselves make their own decisions about sharing and about permissioning. Then there are very few HIPAA considerations that are really scary because privacy is being handled by default because the patient's not giving the data to anybody except for under their direct control. There's no third party to get hacked, right? The, the, there's, the service doesn't have data. And so the HIPAA compliance, when it comes to a more blockchain model where the patient has their own wallet on their own device, and that's where their data is, and they interact with the network from the perspective of interacting with other people, and not necessarily with the perspective of dealing directly with a, you know, with a service provider, it's a model that actually works really well under what HIPAA recommends and what, under what HIPAA regulates. So when you said when the patient has their own wallet that contains their medical data, I was thinking maybe this is jumping ahead a little too much, but I was thinking, 
Could a model like this where the patient has more control of their data decentralize the process of basically mining and selling data for research, for medical research, to where the patient could actually get paid for their own data, almost like they're participating in a clinical trial, but they don't have to go somewhere and take a drug and get measured. They can just sell their old data. Somebody will want to buy that because they'll be part of a retrospective study or something like that. That is precisely our vision of the future of medical research. We believe that instead of data being centralized for data centralization's sake and selling that to research institutions, what we should do instead is a research institution should be able to clearly define what data they're looking for about what kinds of humans, and then they can send a page out to the entire network. Every device receives this query, and the devices that don't have a patient that qualifies just silently fail. They don't report anything back. The devices that do have a patient that qualifies asks the patient, presents the query in an easy-to-understand format. Listen, this drug company is running a study about this thing and wants this data from you for this amount of time, for these purposes, and is willing to pay you this much money. If you click no, then it silently fails as if you didn't qualify, so it reveals nothing about you. And if you click yes, then you accept the contract, you share the data directly with them under those terms, and you get your payment immediately. And so the idea here really is that instead of the researchers buying a big database that's not necessarily well-suited to their task and may have major privacy problems, instead they buy a query-specific database that's not only perfectly suited to their task, but everyone whose data is in that database specifically bought into that task specifically knew that they were selling their data for that particular research project. There's this great book called The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, and it's about what ended up being one of the most popular cultured cell lines that's used in all medical research labs around the world. They're called HeLa cells. And the reason they're called HeLa cells is because they come from this woman named Henrietta Lacks. She had a tumor, and doctors basically took parts of her tumor Somebody decided to try to grow the cells in culture. Voila, it turned into this incredible cell line that's very commonly used in research. But her family never consented to this. And she never consented to this. And in fact, the author of this book tracked down her family and they were pissed. They were like, yeah, she never got any compensation for this. Nobody ever asked her. They just basically treated her tumor as abandoned property. And actually, I believe that is the status of any part that gets removed from your body it is treated as though it's abandoned property and there's no property rights that you have to it once it leaves your body. And so doctors can basically homestead it and then use it uh, in research and potentially generate lots of money and lots of value from it. Um, But it seems a little unfair because it came from the patient. Same thing with data, right? Same thing with your health data. Why should you not have some kind of ownership? I don't want to say intellectual property because I don't really, concept doesn't really jive with me for a number of reasons, but having some kind of ownership and the ability to get compensated for the use of your own data just seems like that's the right thing to do. It's an interesting application of uh, a blockchain for data control in that way, right? A lot of the people who talk about technologies like this, what they're excited about is uh, DRM, right? They're excited about tracking rights to like music content and things like that. And as, as we know from the history of DRM software, this, that stuff is uh, fundamentally anti-consumer. It's to protect big guys from little guys. Whereas this, tracking the privacy around health data, 
and making sure that, the, um, that the, both the access to the health data and the use of it conform with law is the exact opposite. It's a scheme that uses similar technology, that uses similar business practices, but uh, to accomplish the opposite goal of protecting the little guys from the big guys. Speaking of that, Ryan, fast forward 10 years into the future, everybody's using blockchain health to manage their health records. Is this something you're going to have to get hospitals on board with and explain this all to them? Or is this something that people, patients can just start using? Um, What are the challenges to adoption? So ideally, we start from a, from a perspective of patients just start using this. It would be, to me, a wonderful, wonderful thing if we had millions and millions of patients before the first time I had to talk to a hospital or other caregiver. A lot of data about patients is already in very standard formats, so you don't need a good integration with, the EMR, with an EMR to be able to get, for example, blood test data in a good format or to be able to get radiology data or dental data. All of those are pretty standardized. So there's a lot that we can do in terms of helping patients take control of their own data before the first time we need hospital participation. But you're right, at some point, um, once you've gotten all of the data except for the doctor's notes, at some point you're going to want the doctor's notes. When that happens, we're going to have to be able to find some way to work with the hospitals. Um, At this point, our strategy is we're going to provide free open source tools that the hospitals can use or not use. If they want to pay us to help them use them, we're perfectly willing to. The existence or non-existence of those tools has no bearing on the hospital's legal obligation to provide the patient with their data and to provide their data, the patient with their data in relatively convenient formats. And so we're going to budget most of our budget for getting data out of, out of hospitals into helping the patients get data out of hospitals instead of helping the hospitals So the data is still going to be residing in the hospitals, right? Even if a patient has their data, let's say it's stored in the blockchain health app, are you using like Factum or something to be able to blockchainize it? How does that work technically, real quick? It's it's very similar to what Factum does. Basically, what we'll be doing is the patient will have a private database on their own devices that'll be encrypted on disk and synced between their devices using end-to-end encryption. So their devices will have a complete view of their data. And the same complete view, if you have a phone and a tablet and a computer, you'll have the same view on all three. But that's not revealing anything to a third party. Okay. When you want to reveal something to the third party, what you'll do is you'll publish a sharing statement that'll be held within what we're calling a signature chain. It's very much like what Keybase does for mm-hmm. tracking sharing, you know, for tracking uh, user public keys and devices and things like that. And that statement will go into a service-wide blockchain that will be periodically anchored in the Bitcoin blockchain to gain the benefit of immutability and public history. Okay. So that's how it works. So it sounds like on the patient's end, that would be a pretty secure system. You got end-to-end encryption. They control these sharing statements, who can access it, and that's all documented, and there's proof of it. But the same data presumably has a duplicate copy that lives somewhere on the hospital's legacy system which isn't so protected from hacking, breaches, et cetera, right? That's right. Did you hear about their, a hospital recently in Hollywood uh, had their EMR systems on Windows computers? They had accidentally installed a ransomware application. Oh, yeah. Encry- we talked about that on the show, actually. I th- right. It was in LA. That's right. That's right. It encrypted the computers and locked the hospital out of their patient's record until they paid a ransom. And they actually did end up paying the ransom. 
Yep, that's a problem. There was also the insurance company Anthem, which was when Obamacare started, basically you had to buy insurance from a private company. And Anthem was the only company in New Hampshire that offered health insurance. <laughs> so you kind of had to buy it from them if you lived in New Hampshire. And then they got hacked. And all these people's health records and data were, were stolen. Lots of personal data. And, you know, the, pa the patients and the people who are affected by that never really get any recompense or restitution from that. It happens daily, you know, everywhere in the U.S. and the world. So many problems in this system. So I don't think what you're doing is going to prevent that necessarily. But maybe over time, as hospitals switch to a, more, a model that's more like this, those threats could be reduced. So at this point, I have an easier time motivating myself to build solutions that help the patient take secure custody and control of their data. But you're absolutely right that caregivers need to be able to have records and have notes to be able to do their job. And so there's always, there's always going to be the flip side of the caregiver's records. The systems they're in right now are not very secure and they're not very functional. And maybe once enough patients are using our stuff, maybe we should, we should think about also how would we do a blockchain EMR integration for a hospital. But that's, in my opinion, years in the future. It's important to solve kind of where the pain is first. And I think, frankly, there's more pain in terms of patients not having control and in terms of privacy not being respected. Now, there are some physicians, I mean, it's mostly like really rural or very privacy conscious physicians. Some of them are the ones who don't accept uh, third party insurance and they're just like cash only concierge, maybe physicians who actually use paper records because their patients have such concerns about privacy with electronic health records. And the government has been putting the squeeze on physicians who do that for a long time. So there's not many of them left, but there are still some that use paper charts. Now I could see, you know, if you just snap a picture of the paper chart and you put it, um, you encrypt it and you put proof of the existence of that document in the blockchain, um, that could solve the problem without ever even going to that middle step of electronic health records. Is that right? Well, I think for the patients that use those physicians, this would be a very useful way for the patient to custody their own copies of those charts. And, and this might be a very useful way for the doctor to migrate to a more privacy-oriented solution. But at this, point, uh, at this point, we're not focused on building the tools that, the doctor, that would make it useful for the doctor to build electronic charts. Yeah, I, I hear you like there. That. Just wanted to bring up that not everybody does use electronic medical records, e even in this current system. Yeah, although it's been a major focus of the Obama administration to move everybody to to electronic records. Yeah. And, and the due date has passed. Now, um, care providers that don't use electronic medical records can no longer accept Medicare and Medicaid. So, right. The, Some the, of them don't care because they don't want it anyway. <laughs> absolutely right. But, but yeah. anybody, who, anybody who treats old people or children really wants to preserve the ability to, to accept Medicaid and Medicare. And so that's, that's really the vast majority of the medical establishment. A critical question, Ryan, is this just basically going to set up incentives for people to sell off their personal healthcare data and then who knows what happens to it once it goes to the pharma companies? Is it going to set up incentives for people to feel really pressured to sell their healthcare data, perhaps to pay for medical care or something like that um, to say, well, I have this data, I might as well. Sell. It's almost like selling your kidney, right? Like you, <laughs> you feel this financial pressure 
And you're like, well, this is the one thing I have. It's part of my body. Your body's the thing you have when you have nothing. Selling an MP3 version of your kidney. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is, is it just like that? Is it going to create pressure for people? Well, I think that's going to be an interesting question to watch moving forward. It's important to note that your healthcare records are already being sold on a, on a de-identified basis. Every major hospital network and every major HMO participates in what are called health data exchanges. And the, the goal of that really is to get individual records from treatment environments and from clinical environments and get it into the hands of researchers to move science forward. That infrastructure already exists, and it exists with dubious privacy protections and dubious consent. At least our system, if patients used it, it makes very, very clear patient consent to the very specific uses of the data. Because every time you want to want a query, you get your best results if you construct an entirely new database in response to the query. And so, at least this time, patients consent to answering the particular questions that they're answering. Whereas right now, your patient data is being aggregated and sold without your participation and with only very, very minimal understanding by the patient, consent by the patient for the practice. I assume there's a technical way to have some kind of anonymizing or de-identifying process between the person or the company who's wanting the medical data and the actual patient who has the data. Is there a way for them to communicate without kind of knowing who each other are? Well, when the patient decides to send their data back in response to this offer that's made on the network, um, they can choose to send back less than is being requested. So say they're, they're saying, listen, I'll give you $5 for the last six months of your blood test data because you're diabetic, and then I'll give you $10 if you give me also your name and identifying information and, uh, and agree to participate more fully, right? That, that kind of stepping, I could just say, no, I don't want to share my name and stuff, and I unshare that. And look at that, the stuff I'm still willing to share still has a monetary offer, and I can send that out. And then the really nice thing about um, including Bitcoin in the whole thing is that the value can flow back to me without revealing any identity information at all. I can provide you know, the last six months of my blood test records with no information about my identity, not even relationships with financial institutions. All I give them is a, is a freshly generated Bitcoin address that has no history and say, send the compensation here. Hey folks, the magic word for today's episode is doctor. That's D-O-C-T-O-R. Doctor. You've got until the 26th of March to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. On an unrelated note, I'm looking for a few musicians and singers to collaborate with me on what will become my first full-length album. Contact Adam at letstalkbitcoin.com if you're interested. Thanks for listening. Let's rejoin Ryan and Stephanie now. So Ryan, you've been involved with Bitcoin startups and projects since basically before I started Let's Talk Bitcoin. Um, you're currently working on blockchain health and you have another company called Blockchain Clearing. I don't hear Bitcoin in that name, in either of those names. Oh, right. And uh, at least for the blockchain health, you're only really using the Bitcoin blockchain as an anchor. So as someone who's been in the space for a long time, can you kind of 
talk to us about how you're, you know, about how you feel about Bitcoin now relative to how you used to or how you use it now relative yeah, to how you used so to. I used to run a Bitcoin exchange. Back then, I was very deeply enmeshed in kind of the economics of Bitcoin as a currency. And frankly, I, I'm still fascinated by that, even though I'm not professionally involved with that anymore. But I think that uh, Bitcoin, the ability to buy Bitcoin in one country and then 10 minutes later sell it in another country is just insanely cool and is something that no other currency can do and is something that's a tremendous value to any individual or business that has you know one foot in one country and another foot in another, which in our increasingly global world is a lot of us. And so I, I'm, I'm a big booster on Bitcoin as kind of the, uh, the non-state, non-national currency of the internet. I think there's a, there's a rich, rich future in that. Is Bitcoin's future as a settlement layer or as a peer-to-peer you know, value exchange? Network? Well, that's, uh, that, that's becoming a political question in the Bitcoin ecosystem. Well, it's a political question a little bit, but I mean, you know, you're operating in the space, you're using it in ways that you think make sense. Clearly, you wouldn't be doing things that you don't think make sense. So it seems like, you know, from what I can understand about your current projects, you are primarily using Bitcoin as a settlement layer or even just as like a validation layer. Satoshi in 2008, when he wrote the Bitcoin white paper, kind of surprised everyone with the novelty of what he proposed. Before that, there was a very good idea of what a valid database was and how to distribute databases. There's this test for databases that came out in the late 70s called ACID. Um, is the database atomic? Is it consistent? Are the transactions isolated from each other? And is it durable? And this is kind of the gold standard for databases. And all of the work around distributed consensus in databases was about how do you remain ACID compliant while adding in some kind of Byzantine fault tolerance. And in fact, one of the most successful algorithms for a distributed database was called practical Byzantine fault tolerance. What Satoshi did was interesting. He threw out kind of all of the traditional indicators of success in that, like uh, transaction throughput, or that that the state integrity would change often, or, you know, things like that. And he just said, okay, backup. We want internet cash, right? And we want to be able to do it on a BitTorrent-like, completely distributed, completely flat network. What do we need to be able to do that? And he said, well, first of all, you need the ability to have possession of these tokens and to be able to send them around. So he added in a public key layer. And it was incredibly innovative what he did there. So he, he took three technologies, right? He took BitTorrent-like flat networks trading, trading canonical pieces of information. He took public-private key encryption, but he threw out all of the work that anybody had ever done on relating keys to people, right? <laughs> There's no persons in Bitcoin. There are no humans and there are no corporations. There are just relationships between certificates. Bitcoin has an entirely device-oriented identity model where you have certificates that are resident on devices that can have relationships with each other via P2SH, commonly known as multisig, right? So you could have, say, any of these five devices can sign this transaction or this device and one of these others on this list needs to sign it or any kind of arbitrary rules like that. But notice no, the, the network has no idea who people are. It can only recognize that a device has the appropriate certificate 
for the rules that were set up when that account was made. And then the third technology it took in was Adamback's Hashcash, which was originally intended to be an anti-spam measure, where you, when you received an email, you could tell that it probably took about three seconds of work to send that email, and that way you're not going to receive mass market spam, because no spammer is going to send a million emails by doing three million seconds worth of work. His invention of a proof-of-work database that iterates, that introduces new transactions only every 10 minutes, and that's fed by and controlled by this very flat network, and it has a lottery process for determining who gets in. It was completely out of the blue, and it was revolutionary. And it created something that I think nobody before it created knew that knew was a problem, which is it created a sense of history on the internet, right? Because every new block has all of the work needed to generate that block on top of the previous blockchain. And everyone's looking for only the blockchain with the most total work. When you see a new block as a miner, your incentive is to throw out all of your previous work on top of the old block, bring in the new block and build on top of it instead, because it'll make it more likely your block will be accepted. This idea of piling on more and more work at every stage creates the first database in the world that becomes more secure over time. Every other database that exists becomes less secure over time as the administrator credentials for the computer that runs it, for the computers that secure it, become more diffuse. This creates this really strange phenomenon in computer security which is as a system becomes more valuable, it becomes less secure. And Bitcoin is the only exception to that. Bitcoin, over time, becomes more secure as it becoming more valuable because the market price of the Bitcoin mining blocks plus the transaction fees is going to equal the marginal amount spent on mining because mining is, free, is a comp completely competitive market with free entry and free exit. So as a result, the more people are willing to spend getting information into new Bitcoin blocks, the more security those new Bitcoin blocks add to the network. And because it's additive every 10 minutes, the more secure all of history becomes. So it's the first time in, in the history of computer science that you can say for a fact, this thing happened on another computer six months ago. And I know that for a fact. I'm not just saying that because someone told me. That incredible innovation where any transaction that's entered into the Bitcoin blockchain is an indisputable fact that something happened before a particular time on the internet, and somebody reported that. Kind of revolutionary implications for uh, data security and for computer security and for network security that I don't think the security industry is fully processed yet. And this is, this is a thing kind of about Bitcoin and is a very real reason to buy Bitcoin in order to spend it money places, but instead spending it just on embedding uh, these anchors, embedding these informational cues into the Bitcoin blockchain to benefit from the sense of history and the uh, increasing security over time provided by proof of work. So I really liked that explanation. And frankly, I think I, uh, that perspective, I learned a few things from, but it basically sounds like to, you know, summarize uh, that you think that the value is the ledger and the long-term immutable history that it conveys rather than any particular use of it that would uh, involve either settlement or the peer-to-peer -peer network for that matter. Well, on top of that, if uh, Bitcoin are valuable because you can use them to anchor transactions into the blockchain, 
um, that that is a natural source of demand for Bitcoin that has nothing to do with its use of a as a currency, and there's nothing to do with its use as a value transfer mechanism that provides a natural value in the same way that gold's use in electronics provides a natural value in gold. So the fact that anchoring is useful and that people might buy Bitcoin just for anchoring is good news to people who, uh, who, who speculate in Bitcoin for price reasons. Ryan, thanks for uh, joining us today on the show. Before we let you go, I do kind of want to pick your brain a little bit about the, uh, you know, you've been interfacing with a lot of banks and, and 2015, if it was anything, I would say it was a year for blockchain and, you know, banking to try and make something happen here potentially. And we haven't seen the results of many of those efforts. I'm very curious as someone who's kind of had an inside track, uh, you know, how do you think that that's going? Do you think that that Bitcoin or blockchain, uh, you know, like that that is going to have an impact on the banking system in a meaningful way? What type of time frame do you think that is? How is the response been when you're talking to people and how has that changed over time? There's a million questions for you. You can pick which ones you want to answer. Uh, a phrase that people heard a lot, both in bank boardrooms last year and in VC rooms last year was this whole idea of blockchain, not Bitcoin. This is an idea that allows banks to say, listen, we want to work with Silicon Valley. We want to upgrade our core infrastructure. We want to improve our payment systems and our clearing and settlement systems. We just don't want to have anything to do with the Silk Road or China. Please, just like give us all of the stuff without us having to think about Chinese miners or the Silk Road. And it turns out that this is actually a very difficult request to fulfill. First of all, there are some very necessary and needed technical upgrades that the banks need. And many of these can be provided using kind of some of the technologies that blockchain cares about, like improving the identity model behind securing bank systems is helped a lot by, this, by Bitcoin's idea of device-oriented identity, of relationships between certificates are the only thing that matters. Anybody... I mean, Bitcoin kind of has the assumption that anybody who doesn't have the certificates but claims to be the owner is committing fraud. And this is a reasonable assumption for digital security. And banks can learn a lot from that. Likewise, Bitcoin's processing of transactions in real time, relaying of real time transactions, and frequent settlement in the blockchain, that's a topic that also banks can really benefit from. Most banking both for payments and for clearing and settlement of trades, happens on daily batches. And those daily batches that get batched up and then net settled are a tremendously inefficient process that nobody would design using modern network infrastructure, right? People would just say, do it all real-time gross settlement. And Bitcoin provides a lot of that inspiration to build real-time clearing systems. Also, the idea of putting all of the assets on a single ledger it makes a lot of sense if you're setting up a new CSD, Central Securities Depository, or if you're setting up a new CCP, a Central Securities Clearing Party, if you're setting up the infrastructure from the ground up, like Digital Asset Holdings is trying to help the Australian Stock Exchange do, then a, a shared ledger for the base level of asset ownership and, and delivery versus payment can make a lot of sense. But at the end of the day, all of those discussions are interesting, but they all ignore this core innovation that made Bitcoin interesting in the first place, right? All of those things we could have built in 2005, all of those things we could have built in 1995. The thing that made Bitcoin interesting in the first place is that the massive proof of work network 
provided a sense of digital history for the first time. And this is something that the banks need desperately. The vast majority of money that banks spend is not on marketing, and it's not on new product, and it's not on regulatory compliance even. The vast majority of money banks spend is on reconciliation. Every time a bank has a transaction with another bank, you have bank A's records about that transaction and bank B's records about that transaction, and bank A believes bank A's records, and bank B believes bank B's records. And they have, when they go into reconciliation, one of them has to be wrong. And banks spend a fortune reconciling database A with database B with database C. It's what the back office does. And the back office is at least a third of the headcount of every single one of these banks. And there's been no reason to change until now. That's right. And so when Satoshi came out in 2008 and told people, listen, if the longest chain with the most work is the only real chain, then you have a real history and you don't have to worry about double spending. Uh, That powerful statement is not just a powerful statement for allowing an e-cash solution. That's a powerful statement for how systems should be designed when they're dealing with facts and not opinions. Banking is all about creating kind of a, a global database of facts about transactions and, uh, and having it be you know, atomic and consistent and isolatable and durable, right? Having it be asset compliant. And so this idea that banks are still chaining together facts about transactions and accounts and the thing that they want to ignore is the core innovation that now digital history provable digital history is a possible thing is to me hilarious so i think that there's going to be a lot of value from this blockchain not bitcoin movement providing an excuse to upgrade bank systems to do upgrades that should have happened 20 years ago And I think that you're going to see billions of dollars of returns and billions of dollars of money invested making those upgrades. But at the end of the day, they are also going to have to come back to Bitcoin to get this idea of digital history and to start anchoring their databases. Do you think that Bitcoin is the blockchain into which to anchor things? Because you've been, we've been, whenever you've talked about, you know, the idea of anchoring, it's always been surrounding Bitcoin as the you know, as, as the vehicle, are you just using Bitcoin to represent cryptocurrency broadly, or do you actually mean Bitcoin, that specific blockchain? I mean, the proof of work blockchain that provides the most work per transaction fee, which is Bitcoin, which right now is so clearly Bitcoin, it's not even funny. But presumably, if Bitcoin were hobbled, or if another cryptocurrency provided such astounding value that it surpassed that, then you could see people anchor in something like Litecoin or Ethereum instead. I just, at this point, looking at the uh, the pretenders to Bitcoin's throne, none of them seem to have the goal of increasing work over time at reasonable transaction fees. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show was provided by Ryan, Stephanie, and Adam. This episode featured music from Jared Rubens and MindToMatter.org. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. Contact me at adam at letstalkbitcoin.com if you have any questions or comments. See you next week.